concentrated passage this morning. We're looking at verses 8 to 15. The title of the sermon is Captive to Christ. Now, as I looked at it, I really wanted to keep this as, as one message. It's one unified thought that, that Paul is building on as he works through these eight verses in 8 to 15. But as I got into it and started writing the sermon, I realized if I kept it all together, we would be here for an hour and 20 minutes just for the sermon. So I decided as a Father's Day gift to all of you dads who want to get to your buffets and your lunches and your barbecues and your steaks, I'm going to break it up into two messages. So this is Captive to Christ, part one. There's a lot of truth here. It, it, it's a dense one, so we're not going to plumb the depths of this morning. That's why we've saved some of it for next week. As I was preparing, I actually thought, it sort of reminded me of going to the World War I Museum and Memorial for the first time. I kind of ignorantly thought, man, if we block off like three hours to go there and we had some friends in town, we're going to go to the movie War Horse afterwards. So it was like this World War One day. We'll go to the memorial, we'll go to the movie War Horse afterwards. It'll be great. We went there and I had really no idea what I was getting into. I had been in D.C. and so I had experienced the World War II memorial and the Vietnam memorial. And I knew there was a little bit more to this one. I had no idea how much there was, though. And if you're like me and you're a history geek, it's not enough just to walk through a place in a hurry for three hours. I want to read every caption. <laughs> I want to read every detail. I want to take in and soak in the entire experience. And so about three hours in, I probably only had seen about 60% of it. That's sort of what this text is like this morning. We are not going to get everything we can from this text. It is saturated and dense with theological truth. But the good news is we don't have to get it all this morning. We're going to come back next week. And individually, as we go to our homes, we can continue to go back and read it and saturate ourselves in the truth that Paul is showing us here in Colossians 2, 8-15. to So read with me now this passage. Colossians 2, starting at verse 8. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Lord, we come to You hungry for truth and we come to a place in Your Word that is thick with truth. And so we cry out for help from Your Spirit. Help us to digest this truth. Help us to walk into the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord in Colossians 2 this morning and see Jesus and see how Christ, in taking us captive to Him, defeats all competition, shows Himself as totally sufficient 
the exclusive pathway to relationship with you. We pray that you would do this now for the glory of Jesus and for the joy of your people. Amen. Well, as you can see, it's, it's a dense passage. There's a lot to cover. The first thing we see as Paul jumps in is there's this notion that we have been taken captive. First, that we've already been taken captive, but also a warning not to be taken captive once again. He starts out with a stern warning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. The phrase he uses actually implies being kidnapped. Quite literally, he has this idea of being taken away as a prisoner of war or, or a piece of plunder from the city that's been conquered. It's not a pleasant image. One of my, my favorite books that's also a movie is titled To End All Wars. It's by a man named Ernest Gordon. He was a Scottish captain during World War II and, and he was fighting the Pacific Front and he was captured along with his comrades by the Japanese army. And they were imprisoned. And the movie and the book recount the horrors of their imprisonment. It was a terrible ordeal. They were forced as slave labor to build this railroad with the expectation that most of them would die in the process. It's a gripping story. It's a gripping book to read. It's a gripping movie to watch. But as you watch it, you see firsthand the true horror of what it is to be taken prisoner. To have your freedom stripped away. To have your identity stripped away. One of the things the, the Japanese prison leaders would do was trying to, to strip away the identity of these men and shame them into feeling like they were, were almost subhuman. This is part of what Paul has in mind here. His concern is that the believers in Colossae would not allow themselves to be taken captive. To understand the warning, you have to realize captivity is not a good thing. It's a horrible thing. And Paul's concern is not that they'll be overcome and taken captive, but that they'll willingly allow themselves to be taken off into captivity. There's this strangely passive image Paul paints for us. Who would willingly embrace becoming a prisoner of war? Who would willingly embrace being enslaved? But that's precisely the danger. False teachers threaten the church. They threaten to carry Christians off like plunder. To carry them off by foreign, and as we'll see here, fundamentally anti-Christian teaching. Paul calls it philosophy. He says it's an empty deceit. Now, Paul's not ragging on philosophy in general. Not like we'd use the term. So, any college students among us, this is an excuse. This is not an excuse not to take a philosophy class. You can't go to Colossians 2. When Paul's speaking of philosophy, he means of it more broadly than we tend to think of it. Philosophy for us is a, is, a narrow, is a narrow discipline. It's the use of logic and reason to answer questions about reality and life and ethics. There's good philosophy and there's bad philosophy. But in, in the Greco-Roman world, in Paul's time, this word philosophy had a much broader meaning. It really meant essentially any system of thought. It'd almost be more similar to using the word worldview. So his idea is this really broad casting that any system of thought, and though it doesn't get translated, the original Greek refers to it as the philosophy of empty deceit. So Paul has a particular belief system that's infiltrating the church 
in Colossae in his crosshairs. Now, he never gets explicit on the full details of what this is. We'll we'll see in the weeks to come hints at it, small glimpses, this idea that these teachers are putting forward ideas of aesthetic living, extreme aestheticism where, where you have to put off all of these pleasures in life, pagan ideas of having to appease cosmic powers that exist in the world, and even an obsession with with angels, with legalistic elements. Those are the the broad hints we get of it. Whatever the specifics, though, Paul says this philosophy, this worldview, this body of teaching is an empty deceit. It's according to human tradition. It's according to, in this strange phrase, the elemental spirits of the world. Now, taken in order, it's a tradition, it's a body of teaching that's a human source of truth. It's a human source of truth as opposed to a divine source. Paul is saying this is human revelation, not divine revelation. This philosophy might sound plausible, it might sound interesting, it might sound convincing. But in the end, Paul says, it is empty deceit. It's a worldview that is bereft of any moral or spiritual value. Here's the rub. It's also a spiritual deception owing to the work, Paul says, of the elemental spirits of the world. It's a teaching. It's a philosophy. But it's a spiritual deception. If you pulled the curtain back, you would see that behind this body of teaching is a sense of demonic forces at work. There are real false teachers in Colossae. Men trying to to penetrate the church. But behind these false teachers are nefarious, evil, spiritual forces. Spiritual forces attempting to push Christ out and prop themselves up. When we read that, I think there can be a tendency in our Western mindset to get a little uncomfortable. I don't quite know what he means by that. I'll just concentrate on the human tradition part of it, the empty deceit part of it. But it's a reality. We have to beware of an anti-supernatural mindset. Behind all false teaching, I think Paul would say, not just what's threatening Colossae, behind all false teaching is demonic strategy. Strategy to take us captive to something other than Christ. If you've ever read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, he does an amazing way of showing the strategies and the wiles of the enemy, and the enemy's soldiers, in trying to deceive us and take us into captivity. In Colossae, the teaching was undermining true doctrine. We get the sense, as Paul talks about it, they're not saying have nothing to do with Christ. Just like in the screw tape letters, they try and be more subtle. They realize where a bold-faced approach is going to fail, they take, they take on subtlety and subterfuge. And that's what they do here in Colossae. It's not that you have nothing to do with Christ, but they start to hint you need more than just Christ. To which we'll see this morning, Paul responds with an emphatic No. Christ, and Christ alone, is absolutely enough, is more than enough, is fully sufficient, and exclusively enough. 
our kids are at that age where advertising on TV is getting really annoying. If they watch a show and there's an ad, and inevitably they're going to come running up to us and saying, Daddy, Daddy, can we have such and such? And they fill in the blank. The reason that happens is because the advertisers are savvy. These ad companies know how to get their hooks in little kids and convince them as they watch this with all the sparkles and images on the TV, if I get that, I'll be happier than I am now. Trying to convince our little kids, it's not just that you want this, you need this. And if we're honest as adults, we face the same temptations. The ads are more sophisticated. The hooks are more subtle. But you watch the ad and you think, I need a brand new F-150 pickup truck. Never mind that my commute is a half a mile to the church. And 99% of the time, I have no need for that bed. But man, with the extended cab now, the quad cab, I can even fit the car seats in the back. There's no excuse for me not to have what I need. This beautiful truck. When I drive it, I will look manly. I will look like a good dad. Honey, we need a new truck. They get their hooks in. They convince you there's something more to life that you're missing out on. That's what's happening in Colossae. Yes, you have Jesus. Good for you. But don't you know you need more? He's excellent, but He's not sufficient. He's good, but there are other powers to appease. Now, we're likely not facing the exact same false teaching that the Colossian church is. But we face temptations all the time. From benign advertising to add to Christ's sufficiency materialistically through F-150 pickup trucks, whatever it is that, that the ladies dream about when the commercials come on, whatever those commercials are on Lifetime Network. I swear I've never seen that network, so I couldn't tell you what they are. They tempt us to think we need more, even within the church. Practices now, instead of looking to the Scriptures and seeing what spiritual disciplines look like according to the Scriptures, there's an adding to a biblical pursuit of what it is to follow Christ. And, and you see it in, in, in Christian centers where you go and took a retreat with a group one time, and, and they, they very proudly, the folks running the retreat, told us, and there's a prayer labyrinth out in the courtyard, and you can go out there and you can walk the prayer labyrinth. And there was this huge excitement about the prayer labyrinth they had. And it was just this adding to Christ, this mystical idea that if, if you walk around the labyrinth and like run into the dead end, it's like, it's like a living life-size maze. There's some sort of mystical spiritual experience to, to be had. There's something you're missing by not walking that prayer labyrinth. You see the temptation that comes to the church to, to add things to Jesus. To really, truly experience the depths of spirituality. Paul gives us a warning against any man-made philosophy that would compete with the Gospel. 
These ideas are man-made where the Gospel is God's revelation. They are empty and deceptive where the Gospel is true and reliable. They are demonic and spiritually destructive. No matter how interesting, no matter how compelling, it doesn't matter how popular or in vogue they are. They are spiritually destructive where the Gospel is full of transformative power, Paul will show us. And we are no different than the Colossians. We need the warning because we need to be on guard in a state of constant vigilance for demonically destructive philosophies masquerading as human tradition and wisdom that seek to knock Christ from His pedestal. Ultimately, they want to take you captive. But for Christians, there's only captivity to Christ. Full reliance upon Him in all His gracious sufficiency for every spiritual need. Christ is the exclusive place, Paul shows us, where God is to be found. Any teaching that minimizes, detracts, or adds to Christ's exclusive role is wrong. Even though they don't seem to deny Christ, the false teachers are trying to add to Christ. As Douglas Moo, one commentator, put it, it's addition by subtraction. You can't add to Christ without simultaneously dethroning Him from His exclusive Lordship. God shares His throne with no other. So we are called to be captive. Captive to Christ. He then shows us the joys of this captivity, that it relates to the fullness that's found in Christ. While verse 8 is a negative warning, the rest of the passage from verses 9 through the end of 15 gives a rich description of why we don't have to look any further than Jesus, of why there's fullness spiritually to be found in Christ, why there's completeness of spiritual victory, a satisfaction of Christ-centered living. That's what he shows us as we keep going. He promises us that, as we'll see the rest of this morning, the supremacy and sufficiency and exclusivity of Christ shape the way we receive benefits from His Lordship. That's the purpose of 9-15, to those verses. To convince us there is nothing you need to experience or enjoy, out, enjoy about God outside of Christ. The reason for this, echoing his regular argument in chapter 1, is because verse 9 tells us, in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Christ alone, you find the fullness of God. And so by implication, believers who are found in Him, are made full. The word can also be translated, made complete. All divinity, every divine attribute. There's a sense where Paul's going back into chapter 1 and he's hooking all of those descriptions he gave of Christ and pulling them into chapter 2 again. It's almost a, a, a word-for-word quote from a, from a verse in chapter 1. The full Deity dwells bodily. He's grabbing all that context and saying, all of that applies here. All of that 
is seen in Christ. All that God is, Jesus is. Jesus is fully God. By saying that God dwells in Christ, Paul is showing us how the Old Testament is fulfilled. It's fulfilled specifically in Jesus. In the Old Testament where God used to dwell in a temple, and the temple was filled with His glory, now, Paul says, God dwells in bodily form. God, in all His divine fullness, has taken up residence, not in a building, but in a body. So now it's Christ, not the temple. That's the focus of God's revelation. The center of His presence. The gathering point for God's people. To be near God, we don't come to a place. We come to a person. And there's no other place now or ever will be where God dwells in total completeness. That's the fullness that Paul talks about. In this person, in this God-man, through the mystery of the Incarnation, the fullness of God exists. And so to come to God and to experience God, to find salvation in God, to find spiritual fulfillment in God, there is only one entrance. There is only one way to find it. It's through Christ Jesus. You will find fullness, to put it in the terms of our culture, you will find fulfillment in nowhere else but in Christ. And then he starts to detail for us the benefits of that fullness in Christ. If that fullness is true, what are the benefits you receive? What are the ways in which you are meant to find fulfillment in Christ? Paul goes on to say in verse 10, "...you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority." What he details in the rest of the passage is the way we have come to be in this place of fullness. The way that we are fulfilled. He's talking about our union with Christ. We've referred to this before. That union with Christ takes center stage. Because as verse 11 says, we are in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we experience all that Christ experienced. So Paul says, in Him you were circumcised and buried with Him in baptism. I'm sorry, I say that word wrong every time. Buried? 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 I don't know why I say buried, but in my head it sounds way better than buried. Buried sounds like you're going and picking berries. Buried sounds like something that happens in a grave. He was buried or buried in baptism. Raised with Him through faith. And even made alive together with Him. You get this sense in which you are made partakers, you are brought into fellowship with Christ in all of these past experiences Christ has had. It's not just in union with Christ. You now experience everything about Christ from that point going forward. By being brought into union with Christ, God makes you a partaker of the things Christ has experienced beforehand. To grasp the sufficiency and exclusivity of Christ in salvation We have to come to grips with our union. Union with Christ involves everything from our election to our justification to our sanctification all the way up to our glorification. We can't grasp what salvation is until we grasp what union with Christ means. 
To be saved is to be united and filled by the one in whom all deity dwells. Let me say that again. To be united, to be saved is to be united and filled with the one in whom all deity dwells. Everything comes to us because we are in Christ. Now this idea permeates the New Testament. The New Testament authors use all sorts of phrases to show you the reality of union with Christ. Phrases like, in Christ, in the Lord, in Him, those phrases, they occur over 230 times in the New Testament. We're called branches to His vine, stones to His building, the body to His head. Those are all things giving expression to the fact that we are brought into fellowship and union with Him. There is no possible way we will exhaust the nature of our union with Christ this morning. We could do a sermon series for the next ten years and we wouldn't get to the bottom of what our union with Christ means. It is a mystery that we will experience and enjoy and go deeper into for all of eternity. It means that Christ is ours. And we are His. So that all the benefits of Christ become ours. That's how Kevin DeYoung puts this. We are found in Christ. We are preserved in Christ. Saved and sanctified in Christ. We walk in Christ. Labor in Christ. Sorrow in Christ. And conquer in Christ. We obey in Christ and are made perfect in Christ. Just to name a few examples. Another 32 times Paul speaks of believers participating together with Christ in some aspect of redemption, whether it's dying with Christ, being buried with Christ, being raised with Christ, or being seated with Christ. Apart from this kind of union, all the blessing of Christ would be outside of us. You wouldn't know the fullness. It's only when the Spirit joins us to Christ and we are engrafted into His body that we can participate. Not only in Christ's benefits, but in Christ Himself. The whole of the Christian life, from election to justification to sanctification to final glorification, is made possible by and is an expression of our union with Christ. That's why Jesus' final request in the high priestly prayer is that, quote, I may be in them. And why Paul says, quote, Christ in you is the hope of glory. There's nothing you need beyond Christ. There is spiritual fullness, spiritual fulfillment, spiritual satisfaction to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. And then in light of that, Paul walks us through. He highlights the fullness of our union in the passage. We're going to start working our way through the first ones that he numbers for us. Specifically, he tells us, in our union with Christ, we have been circumcised in Christ. In verse 11, he writes, In Him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's a gifted moil. By putting off the body of flesh. 
by the circumcision of Christ. Now, Paul is not a politically correct pastor. In fact, when you read Scripture, there's a lot of parts that aren't politically correct. There's chapters that you read and think, whoa, this this is graphic detail. That's what we're seeing here. We, We can lose sight of how jolting the language is. You just kind of pass over this familiar word, circumcision, and keep going. Paul is willing to bring up private private topics and to use graphic language to make his point. And circumcision, no matter how much we might sterilize it as we perceive of it, is just that. It's the sign of the Old Testament. Remember, it's given to Abraham. Abraham and his entire household are circumcised. Abraham's not eight days old like a typical Jewish boy is when he's circumcised. He's decades older along with his entire household. It's a painful experience for Abraham. Abraham was committed to being God's man. Circumcision is a bloody, messy process. The point is it serves as a covenant badge. It marks a man and his family, the man literally in his flesh, as belonging to God's people. You can sort of think of it as it's like the original passport. The good news about this one is you can't misplace it. It can't get stolen from you. It's the original passport. You don't need to show your identification papers. You don't need to prove that you're a Jew. How do we know you belong to God's people? Well, you're circumcised. It's marked in your flesh. But in our union with Christ, Paul says, that's changed. Circumcision isn't about cutting the flesh any longer. It's not physical circumcision that matters, but spiritual Paul says in Romans 2.29, circumcision is a matter of the heart. Paul says it's done in our passage without hands. Now, to say something is done with hands is a common idiom to say that it's done by men. This was, was made with hands. It's made by humans. So when Paul says this circumcision isn't done with hands, he's saying The New Testament doesn't talk about rabbis cutting flesh. It refers to God cutting our hearts. In Abraham's day, they marked their bodies to show that they belonged to God. In Christ, God now marks our hearts. The reason we don't need physical circumcision is because circumcision found its completion in Christ. It was pointing forward to Christ. That's Paul's point when he references by the circumcision of Christ. It's a strange phrase. What he's alluding to is the cross. That on the cross, Christ was circumcised. He's not talking about when Jesus is eight days old and circumcised as a Jewish boy. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the circumcision that happens as Jesus is hung on the tree and his body is stripped off in a gruesome, violent death. Jesus is circumcised. The result is that those who've been circumcised with Christ participated in His death. The point Paul's making is, if you are in Christ, if you're united to Christ, you're circumcised with Christ. You've participated in His death. In other words, sin no longer holds enslaving power over you. The body of flesh that Paul refers to, this stranglehold that sin has on us, is put off. It's broken. It's literally cut away. 
Think of another way. Christians no longer live in the sphere of the, of the flesh. We're no longer under the in, influence of sin. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our union with Christ in His circumcision means we no longer live in the realm of the flesh, bound and dominated by its power. We've been transferred. We've been given new papers, a new passport, a new identity. As Colossians 1.13 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So in union with Christ, you've been circumcised with Christ. Our head is no longer Adam. Your head is now Christ, the one who has all power and authority. And so we no longer suffer under the influence of Adam's sin. We can thrive under the influence of Christ and His righteousness. To use a phrase from C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, the best descriptor for us is no longer sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. The best description is that we are sons of God. Circumcised in Christ. You now have Jesus. You possess Him. You think of this in the Old Testament. To, to identify who was a part of God's people was to identify in some way your connection to someone who was circumcised. Either the wife of a man who's circumcised, a man who is circumcised, the daughter of someone who's circumcised, or a young boy who on the eighth day was circumcised, or you're, you're the slave of someone who's circumcised. That's how you know you're part of God's people. But that's changed now in the New Testament. With Christ coming and the cross being the completion of circumcision, circumcision is no longer physical, it's now spiritual. So when God says, who are my people? He doesn't look for those who are circumcised. He now looks for those who are in Christ. He doesn't check your flesh. He checks your heart. Are you united to my son? Because we have a new spiritual heart, we're also able to obey, able to fight sin. Because Christ now empowers us. He shows us next, to be united to Christ is to be baptized in Christ. It's the last one we'll unpack this morning. This is closely connected with the idea of being circumscribed, circumcised in Christ. Paul goes on to argue that our baptism in Christ, specifically this, saying this in verse 12, you have been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Baptism is meant to be a powerful image. Water baptism is meant to, to be a dramatic replaying of our union and fellowship with Christ. So when we baptize someone, we explain, when you bring them under the water, it's exemplifying the fact that this person has died with Christ. As they come up out of the water, it's exemplifying the fact that they have been raised with Christ. Baptism's a visible reminder of, of spiritual realities that have taken place in our union with Christ. Now, we could do a whole sermon if we wanted to pause on 
the nature of baptism, why we practice baptism the way we do, why we are credo-baptists, why we baptize people who have professed faith. We don't have time for that this morning. But it's an important symbol. It elaborates on the way that we've been freed from the bondage of sin. To be circumcised in Christ is to be cut away from the old man. To be baptized with him is to have died with Christ. Listen to how Romans says it. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You were baptized into His death so that you could be raised with Him in a resurrection like His. Why? Not just so you'd have the assurance of being raised one day when Christ returns, but as verse 4 tells us, so you could walk in newness of life. He says in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We have fellowship, Paul is saying, with Christ in His death. The old man, our old nature, the flesh, has died with Christ. It means Sin has lost its grip, lost its stranglehold. It means that for every person in here united to Christ, you have the power to say no to sin. You don't have to disobey. Not only that, you're raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. That's a strange phrase, right? Usually, Paul says we have faith in Christ. We have faith in, in Christ's work, in what God has done there. Here he says we have, faith, we have faith in the powerful working of God. Why does he say that? I think he's doing that because he's highlighting something that our union does. Not just that you have faith in the person and work of Christ. Yes, you do. But you also have faith in in the power that brought about all the work of Christ, that completed the work of redemption, that raised Him. Our union happens because the grave doesn't hold Jesus. Because God is more powerful than death. Point being, those who are united to Christ by faith also have faith in what God's power can and will do in their lives. We shouldn't be satisfied to stay stuck in the same sins forever. That's not living out the benefits and enjoyment of your union with Christ. You have faith in the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. It raised Him from the dead. It can take you out of this sin. It can help you to defeat this sin. When temptation comes, you are not powerless. You have fellowship with Christ 
in the power of his resurrection. Your old self was crucified with Christ. It was buried with him. The passions of your flesh were put to death with Christ on the cross. So lust and food and greed and fear and anxiety and laziness and anger and violence and and covetousness and sexual immorality, they have lost their power over you. It's been cut away. It's been put to death. And the flip side's also true. You've been raised with Him. The promise of Romans 6 is those who've been raised now walk in newness of life. You have a new heart under Christ's Lordship. And because you have a new heart, now you have new desires and new passions. Now it's entirely possible to be dominated by love and mercy and servanthood and hospitality and patience and self-control and generosity. The Gospel has power not just to convert you, but power to help you to walk out the realities of your union. Christ has that power. You've been raised through faith in that power. You don't need to add anything to the equation. There's no additional ingredient. It's not a self-help strategy that you need to get over the hump. It's not one more spiritual philosophy to kind of fill in that little corner gap. Man, I I could defeat this sin if I just learned this this special method. Then I would be over it. It's It's a special method this magical formula, this rote system, this human tradition. We're going to see in a few weeks, legalism is not the answer to defeating sin. No. There's only one thing that can systematically empower Christ's likeness. The power that has come to us because we've been united to Christ. Because we've been captive to Christ. And that's the great irony of this entire passage. Paul starts out and says, don't see to it that no one takes you captive. Don't be taken off into bondage. Don't be taken off into enslavement. Why? Because you already know the freedom of being a captive to Christ. It's a strange way to think about it, right? Don't be taken into captivity because you're already captive. You're captive to the only one who can make you truly free. The only one who can break the bonds of sin's hold on your heart and give you the ability to follow God. Give you the ability to have your desires changed. To love what is truly lovable. To do what is truly good. If you are united to Christ, yes, you are a captive. But you are a gloriously free captive. Free to see beauty for what is truly beautiful. Free to treasure something that will never fade or rust or be destroyed. Free to find satisfaction and fulfillment and completeness 
in the only place it's to be found. In Christ Jesus. We have been made captive to Christ. Concluded this quote from Martin Luther. Faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. From such a marriage, as St. Paul says, it follows that Christ and the soul become one body so that they hold all things in common, whether for better or worse. This means that what Christ possesses belongs to the believing soul. And what the soul possesses belongs to Christ. Thus, Christ possesses all good things in holiness. These now belong to the soul, to the believer. The soul possesses lots of vices and sin. These now belong to Christ. Now is not this a happy business? Christ, the rich, noble, and holy bridegroom, takes in marriage this poor, contemptible, and sinful little prostitute, takes away all her evil, and bestows all his goodness upon her. It is no longer possible for sin to overwhelm her, for she is now found in Christ. She is now captive to Christ. Free for the first time in Christ. Would you bow your heads?